Dear listeners, welcome to Ask Dr. Wang. In this program, I will cross the world in search for the best Chinese doctors to help you tackle the pains pills can cure and solve the maladies the knife won't cut away. Let's help each other to heal ourselves. This week. I'll talk to you about an ailment I caught myself not so long ago. I discovered its symptoms in Rwanda when I was there to work on another project, and of course, I encountered some Chinese doctors there to help me in the process. But, as I would soon discover, too much help isn't necessarily a good thing. In fact, the only Chinese doctor I could find in Rwanda was called Doctor Liu. Who confirmed to me that he was the only practicing Chinese doctor he knew of who lived there? He had been there for fourteen years, and moved there because he heard from Chinese colleagues who moved to Tanzania that it would make a reasonable living. Even though he was trained in Chinese medicine, he can't necessarily categorize what he does now. As he explained to me. So you do neither Chinese nor Western medicine? Yes. Yeah. 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 Yes. Yeah. Let's say that、um, locals、uh, don't care about Western or Chinese medicine, as long as you cure their disease, then they are interested. If you can't cure the disease. They won't care about any、uh, medicine. <laughs> But first, I'll tell you about my symptoms. After having returned from Rwanda, I found myself unable to speak. I had a hard time telling friends and family what I had done during my visit, the stories of the people I had met, or even what I had for dinner every night. It wasn't simply the difficulty of conveying a singular experience to someone who wasn't present at that moment in time, but it felt more like I couldn't summon up the words to describe Rwanda because the words didn't exist, or maybe the words had existed at some point but had since been erased from memory. The speechlessness already started when I was in Rwanda. It was somehow hard to process my thoughts of the country. Attempts at documenting my experience were futile. Every photograph I took felt as if I had been taken already, like I wasn't necessarily documenting the thing in front of me, but like I was photographing something that was already a constructed image. As I got off the plane, I remember the first and last time I visited the African continent. 
which was six years ago, in Sudan. I remember that I was picked up from the airport and given a tour of Khartoum. It was before the people had risen and the sun was just about to. I remembered seeing dusty roads lined with marble plastic chairs in chemical colors. Sometimes a donkey would walk past. It corresponded with a lifetime of images that had already involuntarily accumulated in my mind, and I remember thinking, ah, I'm in Africa. Kigali didn't feel like that, or like any other place I had seen before. People were describing it for me the whole time, and yet it was so hard to grasp. The two Dutch people who came to pick me up from the airport said that some called Rwanda the Singapore of Africa because it was so well kept, or policed, depending on which side of the border you lived on. They also said that Rwanda was also called the Switzerland of Africa because of its hilly landscape. And surely, in the two weeks that I was going to spend there, I saw four different colors of soil, but I hadn't found a single stretch of ground that was flat. Like the rest of the country, Kigali too was on hilly terrain. We drove up and down the well-maintained roads of Kigali, and different parts of the city were simultaneously hidden and revealed beyond the hills at any point, and it was never possible to get a grasp of its full reality. Western media often describe Rwanda using various synonyms of miracle. Its steady economic growth of eight percent per year has made it, by some assessments, the most desirable sub-Saharan country to invest in. According to a CNN research, Rwanda was the biggest improver in Africa, gaining five places to become the third most prosperous country on the continent, and the sixth highest in regulation and government effectiveness. A picture of the country had been painted for me already upon arrival. Yet, the language used to describe Rwanda didn't feel accurate. It felt too muddled, like the hills of Kigali. It was too incomplete to contain the country in its full reality. A bit like what would happen if we would just use English words to describe all the different shades of snow an Eskimo sees. Kigali was pristine, beautiful, the roads new and the lawns well kept. The house is so clean, as if the painter had just finished painting the facades, and the walls were forever too wet to touch. And I felt like I was standing amidst a beautiful reproduction whose original I had never seen. The other part of my speechlessness might have stemmed from the fact that when locals spoke, I sometimes literally could not hear what they were saying. At the airport customs, the officer mouthed his question to me in a way that was barely audible,、yeah. as if he wanted me to lip read. Excuse me. Yeah. There were more people whose voices were impossible to hear, as if they were permanently whispering. Fearful that someone would actually understand what they were saying,、yeah. it seemed that the more impersonal or formal the situation was, the softer people would speak.、Mm-hmm. It was as if certain types of spaces were made with a kind of walls that、yeah. would absorb sound, as if the room was soundproofed in reverse. Yet 
the story arc of Rwanda's national timeline seemed to me incredibly clear. Whether it was researching Rwanda in the library or speaking to the people there or driving through the country, it was clear that the Rwandan genocide was the dominant narrative act. In the hundred days that followed April first, nineteen ninety-four. Members of the Hutu majority, one of Rwanda's three ethnic groups, systematically killed Tutsi and moderate Hutu. After which, one fifth of Rwanda's total population was murdered, while only less than a third of the original Tutsi survived. The genocide seemed to have reset the national timer back to zero. While the genocide was spoken about as the key event. It seemed a lot harder to figure out or discuss the events and ethnic tensions that led to its culmination. One thing that is certain is that the genocide showed how speech could be a dangerous thing. During the genocide, the radio became a tool to incite and direct the killing of the Tutsi population. Most prominently, a private radio station called Libre de Mille Collines. Called for a quote, final war unquote, to quote, exterminate the cockroaches unquote. And up until today, there are still no public radio stations in Rwanda or any other media outlets that are not controlled by the government. What does it sound like, I wonder, when weather forecasts on the radio are followed by lists of people to be killed and the locations of their hiding places? Much of what has been written in foreign media seems to convey that the story has progressed from that point of zero. Drastic measures were taken to rebuild the country, and as I mentioned before, Rwanda had quickly landed itself on many of the top spots of the ranking lists describing the continent. Here's a fragment from CCTV, the Chinese national broadcasting company, describing Rwanda. Whether you like Kigali or not. There is no denying it's different to the average African capital. Traffic flows freely. The streets are swept clean. Crime is rarely an issue here. Some analysts argue that Rwanda is run like a private company, with its president a very hands-on chief executive. Paul Kagame himself has made clear Rwandans together have made the country what it is today. When we created Rwanda's Vision 2020, and committed to the current president, who has been the de facto leader since the genocide, has pressed the country to atone and forgive by introducing a new language of reconciliation after 1994. While the workers were busy building roads and genocide memorials. Tens of thousands of mainly Hutu combatants from Congolese rebel groups were slowly being brought back and reintegrated into Rwandan communities. And as prisons became overburdened after the genocide, with many reaching five times their capacity in the next year, prisoners were released to be tried in local courts, where perpetrators were urged to confess and seek mercy in public places, while the survivors were encouraged to accept those who have murdered their loved ones. Back at neighbors and colleagues, 
Kagame even went as far as literally introducing a new official language into the country, as English replaced French, in the hopes of furthering the country's ties with its English-speaking neighbors while erasing the memories of its old colonizer. But amongst this cacophony of confessions, a silence was introduced too. Over the years, clauses were introduced to the constitution to address what was called genocide negation or genocide denial or what was called inciting genocide ideology. What falls specifically under those laws isn't entirely sure, but up to 20 years of imprisonment is the consequence of breaking them. Another law concurred to the vision of Rwanda becoming an ethnically neutral state, erasing words like Hutu and Tutsi completely from the national vocabulary. Amnesty International warned about how the law criminalized dissenting voices, and the report included cases in which the law was used to settle personal vendettas, like students accusing their teachers, or individuals settling property disputes. Interestingly enough, the report itself was called safer to stay silent. But amidst all the silence, new voices came into the country too. In the second part of this episode, I'll tell you what that new language is and how that has to do with my symptoms of speechlessness. In Kigali, it took me a long time to physically find the practice of Dr. Liu. He had a lot of difficulty explaining to me where exactly to go. He tried to explain the route to me in Chinese, and when that didn't work, he would ask someone who was with him to then explain it again in Kinyarwanda, which didn't sound entirely fluent. I asked him later about his language. So you learned Kinyawanda to speak with the locals? Yes, yeah, 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 yes, yeah. Was it hard to learn Kinyawanda? Um, how can I say this? Um, I think I only learned the simple one. Um, I guess when you want to speak it well, then it will be difficult. Then how did you translate the notions from Western medicine, and especially Chinese medicine, to Kinyarwanda? In the beginning, I used a translator. But with our medicine, we just give the medicine and uh, do the procedures, so there is not that much to translate. So um, there is no need to explain it so clearly. It probably wasn't hard to guess that this new language I was talking about is Chinese. I myself am always amazed at how easy Chinese immigrants around the world can totally get away with not speaking a single word of the local language because everything they need can be found within their own community already. The Chinese community in Rwanda is not huge, but it has grown exponentially over the years to now become about 2,000 people. I didn't notice that many Chinese people on the streets, though I did see some red-painted compounds that served as Chinese restaurants. But 
many of the streets themselves were built by the Chinese. The highways I drove on were built by the Chinese. The landmarks in Kigali I was introduced to were built by the Chinese. And right now, an updated railway line that would connect Rwanda with Kenya, Uganda, Burundi and South Sudan was mostly financed by the Chinese and, of course, constructed by the Chinese. And it wasn't just that. Most of the people who I spoke to who had the means to go to university had either studied in China or knew someone who had studied in China or was trying to go and study in China, often on the scholarship given out by the Chinese government. Others who remained in Rwanda would sometimes try to work for one of the many Chinese companies there. I spoke to Murenzi, a civil engineering student who explains why he has this ambition. But even they've been, they get given the scholarships. But for us, civil engineering students here in Rwanda, they know that they they would prefer to work with Chinese people (laughs) instead of working with those guys, the European guys. Because there are more opportunities to work in Chinese. Opportunities, and when you see uh, the Chinese people, they can accept to to work with less interest. When you what do you mean? Like when you are in the business with them, when I on the marketplace. Yeah. they can accept just less money. They can just do cheap things, mm. like they load, they they construct. And for them, for them, it is easier for 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 them to get just a lot of things, a lot of uh, things, uh, jobs. Mm. Yeah. 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 I don't know how they do, but they, the Chinese they have been working in Rwanda for a long time already. Less money. As Rwanda rebuilt its roads, its population and its national memory after the genocide, the Chinese came in, who themselves were building their own country in the boom years of the 90s. Chinese companies took on the jobs that Western companies wouldn't do, for example, out of human rights concerns. By 2012, China Road and Bridge, the biggest Chinese company in Africa, had already constructed 70% of the Rwandese roads. I read this quote in a local newspaper in which a Rwandese journalist said, America comes with democracy, the Chinese come with roads. In order to realize his dream of working for a Chinese company, Murenzi reached out to the Confucius Institute in Kigali, which is a Chinese foundation with about 500 locations in different countries to educate and promote Chinese culture and language. The institute was based in the University of Rwanda in Kigali, and Murenzi asked them whether they would visit him at his university up north so he and his fellow students could learn Chinese too. About them. So I contacted one volunteer uh, association, it's called uh, Confucius, Confucius. So I contacted them and I asked them whether they could come and work within my current institute. And I was very glad that their answer was yes. They did not even hesitate to know 
uh, the location and so they asked me to ask my school readers and uh, I contacted them and I told them about the Chinese uh, volunteers who could be within our institute and we help the students learning uh, Chinese language and also to know the uh, different kind of uh, Chinese culture. Also, so, Rwandans who had gone to China to study uh, seemed to have a positive impression of China. So was it your first time in China? I spoke to Dr. Musoni, who was a neurologist was who had studied in pathology in China, which was paid for uh, by the Chinese government, who also paid for a short three-month course in, in Chinese medicine. What was it like? What did you? What, what was your impression? Yeah, it was in that period of uh, Olympic Games. It was very, very interesting. Everything was clean. And people were very, very happy. And everything was very, very organized. Was it, was it very different to Rwanda? The difference? Yes. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe it was the same, I don't know. Tell me. You can start even on the the size of the China, the size of Rwanda. Rwanda is a small country. China is a big country with many people and with the fast developing economy. Yeah. And even the the mandate of the people are not the same. Mm-hmm. The Chinese are hard workers. And the Rwandans are not? Rwanda <laughs> also, they are not at the same level as the Chinese. It was as if while Rwanda was recovering and developing, the Chinese had come in to fill in the gaps of what couldn't be said and couldn't be done, putting construction and progress above any concerns of the West or even the Rwandans themselves. The hospital that Dr. Musoni worked in part of the time, the Masaka Hospital, was also built by the Chinese. And it housed the Chinese medical team, a group of doctors that China sends to Rwanda every two years to aid the country's health care. And speaking to these Chinese colleagues of Dr. Musoni, who are also friends with Dr. Liu, because all Chinese in Rwanda know each other, they said, anyway... I realized that both parties had equally romantic views of each other. One of the members of the team, Nurse Gal, explained to me her first impressions of Rwanda. It's better than I had imagined. At least, mm, I thought that in Africa, some people wouldn't have enough to fill their stomachs. So in that respect, it's still okay. The people can at least... No matter whether it's one meal a day or two meals a day, at least they all have food to eat. Back then, they said that Rwanda is very poor. They said that people don't have shoes to wear. But after I came and saw for myself, basically everyone has shoes to wear. (laughs) It's better than in my imagination. Also, the second time I came, I felt like Africa and Rwanda had developed much better very fast. Look, coming to Kigali now, firstly, it's like the moods of the people are very good, very optimistic. And secondly, mm, 
Um, many people have their own jobs and they can even afford to buy cars and afford to build villas. I, uh, I really think that it's very, you know, but of course there are also very poor people. According to Doctors Without Borders, China prefers to use the term partner over donor-recipient to indicate an equal exchange in its relationship with Rwanda. The Doctors Without Borders report describes the relationship between China and Africa as based on, quote, equality and mutual respect, bilateralism and co-development, no political strings attached and non-interference with domestic affairs, and stress on the capability of self-reliance, unquote. It did seem as if the Chinese were doing very good things in Rwanda. The Confucius Institute seemed to be willing to help out Murenzi and his classmates. The Chinese government provided education for those qualified, and the Chinese medical team brought new medical knowledge to the country's hospitals. But at the same time, I realized that just because the doctors on the Chinese medical team replied loudly and swiftly to my questions and seemed to have such a positive impression of Rwanda, that didn't yet mean that things were really being spoken about. For example, when I asked one of the doctors, called Dr. Li, whether the Chinese medical system or the Rwandese one was more fair, he replied the following. So, what do you think is more fair, the Rwandese or the Chinese system? Can I please ask, is the price of an iPhone the same in America as in China? Um, I don't know how much it costs in China, but um, I think the cheapest iPhone here costs $200. Um, I also wanted to ask, is there a lot of pressure at work there? Oh, hmm. that is really much cheaper. On the mainland, an iPhone 6 costs 5,000 yuan. Oh, can you get it in Rwanda? In Rwanda, it costs 80,000 francs. It's the equivalent of 8,000 Chinese yuan. It's a shame that you won't come to Rwanda anytime soon. We will return to the mainland around January 2016. If you come back to Rwanda again, can you please bring one? Many thanks. I have to let you know that the voice recordings I played just now with the Chinese medical team weren't recorded live. Instead, they're parts of conversations I've had with them using a Chinese messaging app called WeChat. It's the biggest app of its sort in China, and it complies to the censorship conditions of the Chinese government which is why WeChat exists in China and Facebook doesn't. In this case, a message containing a censored word, like the name of the South China Morning Post, a censored Chinese-language newspaper, will not go through. For example, when a friend of mine living in the United States once mentioned such censored content on WeChat, she received a call the next day from an anonymous number saying that she should be careful. But also in real life, the doctors seem to suffer under the syndrome of using too many words but actually saying very little. When I met them for dinner in Kigali, I tried to ask them questions, but 
All Nurse Gao was saying to me was, "Eat, eat, eat more, more. Eat, eat, eat more." While Dr. Lee would ask me about the length of American school holidays and whether the canteen at my school was okay. Okay, we should eat. Yeah, yeah, they're telling us to eat. They're waiting for the meat. The doctors from the Chinese medical team got to know Dr. Liu pretty quickly after they arrived almost two years ago. They come in to the country for a year or two, or maximum of four years at a time. While Dr. Liu had been there for 14 years, which meant that he, in theory, could have seen seven shifts of doctors come and go. It's not that he talked so much to me, but that was more because he was also the type of person who only cares about his next meal, and then the next one, and then the next one. Yet, the little that he said. Led me closer to the understanding of my symptoms than many others. If we look at the total picture, let's say、uh, they mostly want to see the effect,、uh, keeping fit or staying healthy. They in African countries haven't yet achieved that level. The differences are big.、Uh, the differences are, the differences are so big. For Chinese people to cure an illness, they can sell their house and everything they have. Africans, they won't do that. If they die, that will be God's wish. Their perspective is completely different. They believe that once the symptoms are cured, they are better.、Uh, on the other hand, the Chinese people they they want to cure the root. Africans、uh, they don't think about it in that way. They think if it doesn't hurt anymore, it's cured.、Um, it's probably true that runners might think that once a symptom is cured. The illness is gone too, but it's also true that that's the case for many Chinese people too. China is the country in which GDP has become a household word that is part of mundane daily conversations, and the annual growth in GDP is used to justify anything, from the country's lung cancer-producing air quality to an income inequality that even surpassed that of the United States. Finally. I understood that the speechlessness I had encountered was the result of having tried to seek answers at the intersection of two localities that both weren't so interested in explaining it so clearly. I was in between two realities who used erasure as part of the formula to progress, and they didn't care what kind of medicine was used, as long as it had effect. And in the case of my own speechlessness. I still don't feel like I possess the accurate words to describe the experience I have had, even though just now I gave it a go. But I stopped minding it after a while because I'm not sure whether speech is the best way to process thought in an environment in which silence prevails, and it seemed to me inadequate to invent words to fill up that silence. 
是是是是是是是是是是是是是是是是是是。Thank you for listening to the fourth episode of Ask Dr. Wang. I want to thank my dear ones, Jura Asim, Benedicta Lux, and Christian Yampeta for lending their voices for this episode. For the next episode, we'll be going back to our roots in China. And finally, as always, take care of yourself, and please don't eat things straight out of the fridge, especially in the winter. And see you soon.